Psalm 133. Last week uh, we talked about those Psalms of Ascents. And uh, this is one of them. It's one of the last, next to the last. And uh, in speaking of that, um, I thought we'd go back to this little short psalm uh, that talks about unity. And I don't want us to be fooled by the brevity of the psalm because it expresses something that is very close and dear to the heart of God. Unity among God's people is something that He loves and cherishes uh, more than anything. Unity within the Trinity, which is a given. And unity among us with God, that we're together, one with Him in, in uh, our hearts and in our minds. And then unity together, that we are of one mind and one accord amongst ourselves. It's one of the clearest signs that we have genuine love for each other, that we experience unity together. I want to look at Psalm 133 for a moment, and I left some space there. Uh, in your outline, uh, if you want to make a couple of notes. But this uh, particular psalm, three short verses, says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. David writes this psalm, and he thinks about the blessing of unity. You know, David, I suspect, had a lot of insight into the subject. Um, he did not have a lot of unity in his household. Um, David had a lot of disunity and dysfunction within his family. Um, and that's kind of sad for him as a king. He also did not have a great deal of unity uh, going into his uh, kingship because of Saul. And uh, there was a time when his own son, later down the road, turned against him, and Absalom tried to get rid of him. And so David, from that perspective, I think, uh, cherished unity. There was something he longed for that he didn't have uh, in many senses. But on the other hand, uh, there was a kinship and a relationship with Jonathan, uh, his dear close friend, and actually Saul's son, that um, was a great blessing in his life. He and Jonathan were closer than brothers, and uh, they had one heart and one mind, and they, were, uh, they had each other's back, and they took care of one another. And there was a great sense of unity there that I think uh, David cherished. Uh, 
And he valued that highly. And David had unity with God. He was a man after God's own heart. That's an expression of unity. That he and God were on the same page. That doesn't mean that David did everything right. and We know the stories. But it does mean that David had a great relationship with God that was characterized by unity. And whenever that unity was disturbed, Psalm 51 is an expression of how quickly he ran to God to get it straightened out. Because he could not bear to have his unity with God disrupted. Not for very long. It wasn't too long before he was repenting and coming back together. By the way, when we get out of unity with God, just for the record, it's always our fault. It's it's never his fault. Uh, He does not have the problem. We have the problem. And we need to come back and get his perspective again. And uh, do you know the word confession actually means to say the same thing as. It means to be in agreement with God. So when we look at our failure, our sin, our um, dysfunction, we come into the presence of God and we agree with God concerning His perspective on our life. We say, Lord, you're right. You know, I've sinned, or I have this personality flaw that that I'm counting on you fixing by your Spirit. I have these issues, and you're right, I agree with you. That's the literal meaning of confession. And so when we come into the presence of God to restore unity, uh, knowing that the problem is not His, we seek the insight as David prayed, Search me, O God, and know me, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way uh, everlasting. Psalm 139. Uh, David asked for God to examine his heart to make sure that he had not gotten uh, off track in any sense. And so he writes how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And then verse 2, I have to admit, has always bothered me. Um, I don't like my head messed with. I don't like my hair messed up. (laughs) I don't like stuff in my hair. I don't like, uh, ooh, oil coming down on my head. That, That does not create pictures of warmth and and fuzzy coziness to me. That's like, ugh. But having admitted that, this is talking about something very different. Uh, it is talking about oil coming down on the head, but it has a very different significance. He says, it's like precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. And David is going back to the time when the tabernacle was established and the priesthood was uh, first formed by the direction of God. And Aaron was appointed a 
the high priest unto the Israelites, whose role and responsibility was to intercede between the people and God and God and the people so that unity could be preserved. And Aaron's mission, if you please, was to represent the people in the presence of God. And in order to do that, he needed an anointing. And throughout Scripture, the oil has represented the Holy Spirit. And so they literally poured the oil on Aaron's head, the anointing oil, and it ran down his beard and onto his garment. But it was a symbol that he had been covered and anointed with the Holy Spirit. And that he, in that anointing, uh, was able to come and intercede before God on behalf of the people. We're going to see in a little bit how unity enhances our prayer. And for Aaron, this anointing enabled him to serve as the priest. When brothers dwell together in unity... And sisters, when you dwell together in unity, there is a great anointing upon the prayer life and the intercession and the mission. And so David says it's like this anointing oil that uh, prepared Aaron for his service. And then he says it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing forever. Life forever. David says, not only is it like the beard, but it's uh, the, the oil upon Aaron's head and beard, but it's like another kind of anointing. It's the anointing of the refreshing dew in the morning coming down upon the mountains of Zion, the place of God's dwelling. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. And by way of uh, comparison, David is saying that unity is the blessing of life forever. That God blesses unity. That He loves unity. It's refreshing. It's restorative. It's powerful. And it brings life. So, I'd like you to look over in John chapter 17 um, for a moment as Jesus prays because um, John chapter 17 verses 20 to 23 because as Jesus prays, one of the uppermost things in his heart and mind is the unity of of His disciples, and of the church to come. Now, if you're not familiar with the setting, they have just shared the Last Supper together. And by the way, there, there wasn't even a lot of unity at the Last Supper. Uh, they were talking about who was going to be greatest, and you know, that kind of thing. All those humble attributes. Those disciples, man, did they need some unity and some anointing. 
And uh, they had just finished the Last Supper. Jesus had given them a lot of teaching about the Holy Spirit and about bearing fruit and about the Comforter and about His presence with them. And then uh, He invites them to go with Him and He wants to pray with them. And He prays for them. Now this is not the prayer in the garden necessarily, but it is a prayer for the disciples and His future. He says in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for all who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Jesus is identifying himself with the Father in perfect harmony. And then he says, I want these, my disciples, to have the same unity with us in the Trinity that we have, that we share. So the world may believe that you sent me. What do you see out in the world today? What do you see all over the world? I mean, it's craziness. Uh, Not only on the mega scale of wars and rumors of wars and countries and uh, at one another and terror activity and all of that kind of stuff, which is the lowest level of man's hatred for man, of human hatred for one another. I mean, in terror attacks... People they don't even know are murdered just out of hate. And we live in a world that has that scale, but also it has a smaller scale of constantly vying for the upper hand, looking to gain the advantage over other people. Um, You know, you see it. Cutting in line, driving in traffic. Oh my goodness. I, I just continue to be amazed at what goes on on the roads. Uh, it, I'm surprised that there isn't more uh, road rage than there is. I, I, there's a lot of it, but it's mostly contained within the vehicle. But uh, every once in a while it breaks out. It's just amazing. It's amazing how people gossip and backbite each other and, and all the things that go on in companies and in clubs and in neighborhood. Uh, they disbanded our uh, neighborhood, what do you call it? The Homeowners Association, thank you. They disbanded this. It's been so long since I've been to one, I forgot the name. They disbanded it because they couldn't agree. They couldn't get along. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden we have people suing each other. And it's like, man, this is crazy. The world is a dysfunctional, disunified, me-first kind of place. Jesus says, if you manifest the kind of unity that my Father and I share, the world will look at you and say, Wow, 
There's something really different. What do you have that I don't have? It will be the proof that you have been sent by God. Because you have such a different attitude. The glory which you've given me, I've given to them. That they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. So the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. See how closely love and unity are tied together. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so they may see my glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Of all the things that Jesus could have prayed as he came to the end of his earthly ministry with his disciples, and of all the things that he might have asked for, the one thing that was most important on his mind was that his disciples have unity. Um, Is that they have unity. Unity is paramount In the heart and mind of God. It is absolutely essential to His presence, His blessing, His anointing. And He loves it dearly more than anything else. What does unity mean? I I mean, we talk about unity, but let's talk about what it is. Because if we don't know what it is, we won't know when we have it and when we don't. First of all, unity means that we genuinely love each other. When we pray for one another, that's one way of showing that we love one another. But there's more than that. Do do we care about one another's needs? Are we interested in meeting each other? Uh, at the level of need, whether that's physical or emotional or spiritual. Uh, Are we on one another's heart? Are you glad when you come here and you get to see one another? You know, does it give you delight to be with your brothers and sisters? Uh, Unity means there is genuine love for one another. And, and that we have that at a deep level. Um, it's hard for me in some ways to understand not loving each other. I mean, all of you are precious to me. I value you. I, I can't imagine not wanting anyone to be here. And I don't like them. You know, it just doesn't exist. We've all got quirks. I'll get to that in a minute. But do we value one another's lives? It means that we share the same core values, placing priority on the same things in life. Now, that doesn't mean everyone wants to have the same occupation. <laughs> I'm talking about core values. 
What is most important when you strip away all the other things that could be attributes, preferences, opinions, ideas, yada, yada, when you strip away all that other stuff and you come down to what's left in a core value, I will die for this. That those are the values we share. They orient around God. They orient around the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They manifest themselves in embracing His heart and His mission and making Him number one in our lives. Our core values, we cherish His Word. We're not another kind of church that has disrespect for the Word of God because we are people who value His Word. I, earlier in this prayer of John 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. Okay? Your Word is truth. King James comes through occasionally. And so, we have that value of the Word of God. We value the gospel, because it is the message of salvation. It has saved us, and it will save others, and we are driven to share it. These are the things that come down to the core. And when everything else is taken from us, we turn to God. He is our source. He is the bottom line. These are the core values that we share. Uh, we also have a common mission. Jesus says, I, I'm going away. Uh, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. The same one that's been in me is going to be in you. And as you go out into the world, make disciples of all the nations. Teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And, and that is our mission. That we share the good news of Jesus Christ. That means a great deal to God. Because He wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We know that that won't happen. He tells us that wide is the path, wide are the gates, broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many are on that road. But nonetheless, his heart attitude is revealed in the scripture that says God desires all people to be saved. And we have a mission that we preach the gospel because we never know where we're going to find those people that will be saved. And so we go with that common mission, however we do it. You know, some of us are not going to be able to go physically, but we can go prayerfully. You're going to learn things uh, about our missionaries in March that will enable you to pray effectively for them. You can sign up and get on their prayer letter, their email list. 
You can receive insight from them as to what their needs are. And we can pray for them. That's a way of going. We can support them. We can give to them. Uh, We can designate uh, some of our offering to the Great Commission Fund and to other special projects. We can get invested in world mission even if we're not able to leave Illinois. Because we care about that mission. And so unity means that we are, as we say in our um, colloquialism, we're on the same page with the mission and with the values. On the other hand, unity does not mean that we agree on everything in every detail. Uh, it's interesting to me that in the upper room as they were meeting after a 10-day prayer meeting and one accord, it came time to replace Judas, and they came up with two names. How do you think they did that? Because they had two different ideas. And so they came up with two names, and they determined a common way in their culture to solve the problem. Uh, and by the way, the scripture says... Um, Uh, People cast lots, but the Lord determines the outcome. Uh, Don't take that to Vegas. But um, at any rate, that was within their culture. And so they cast the lots and chose one of them. That implies to me that they were not in 100% agreement, but they were in agreement on how to solve the problem. And the people whose candidate lost accepted it. Our gifts and our attributes differ. We have different strengths and different weaknesses. And friends, we need each other. My wife and I have strategic differences. And if we weren't together, we would only be half as strong and make more mistakes. Because I need her input. I need her perspective. Now, it's not always calmly expressed over dinner in a normal conversational tone. I, well, let's talk about this, you know. Sometimes it's, what are you thinking? But anyway, and she needs mine. We're not a whole church if we don't have each other. We have, we have different gifts. We have different abilities. We have to bring them together. Together we make a whole. But if you're out there just doing your thing, the gifts of the Spirit were meant to be shared in the context of the family, of the church family. If you're out there on your own doing, doing your thing... <coughs> You're going to be blind. I mean, seriously. You're going to think you're right. But you're going to miss important things. Because you have different strengths. But you also have weaknesses. And without someone else who has your weakness as their strength, you're going to mess up. That's just the way it works. 
We were designed to be together. And so I put down here leadership versus administration, for example. Some people think those go together. They do not. You can, you can analyze uh, personality types and attributes or do strengths finder or I've had extensive training in the IDAC uh, personality inventories in, in terms of uh, determining the, the best fit kind of occupation. And I can tell you what, leaders lead and administrators keep it all together. While leaders are out there charging forward without a care in the world for how it's going to get done, let's just do it. It takes an administrator behind the scenes to bring order and, and to, to bring some organization and some structure. And if you look at leadership teams that are not smart... They're together, but they're not savvy to what's going on. A leader will always be complaining about those people that are always trying to hold them back. The administrators. And the administrators will always be complaining about that nutcase that's got the CEO title, but he doesn't have a brain in his head because he's always doing dumb things. But... There's a reason why he's the CEO. Because he's willing to take risk, get out in front and go where no one's been. He's not afraid of change. Those are different qualities. We need them in the church. If you have all leaders, first of all, you're not going to be in unity. You're going to be fussing all the time. And somebody's going to lead us off the cliff. You've got to have some administrators to keep order and organization and structure. And every once in a while, that administrator needs somebody to say, you know what? Standard operating guidelines are just that. They're not law. They're not morality. They're a guideline. That means I can break it. <laughs> You've got to have that ability. To say to the administrator, your rules are good 95% of the time, but 5% of the time, I'm going to break them because I need to, to get what accomplished should be accomplished. So you see, you're going to have that kind of thing. But if you see it and understand it and love each other and appreciate it, the leader's not going to go off half cocked all the time. And the administrator is not going to get miffed every time he runs over his rule book. There's going to be understanding and reciprocity and give and take because you're on the same page. We're after the same thing. And I understand that sometimes my perspective is limiting because that's how I'm wired. And so there's that. I put down exhortation versus mercy. There's a lot of ways to translate exhortation. Uh, some people call it counseling. Some people uh, uh, call it, you know, building up or whatever. But an exhorter ha has a tendency to, to, be, to be a little tougher. Straighten up. 
You've heard me tell the story about the lady that came up to Mr. Wesley. It was uh, John Wesley, the evangelist. It was a fight and debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. And she was quoting the catechism to him, basically. And she said, Mr. Wesley, I will have you know that I sin every day in every way, in thought and word and deed. And he looked at her and he said, well, you better stop it. (laughs) The exhorter just cuts to the chase. I remember years ago when I first came here and uh, um, Willow Creek, Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels was actually personally teaching a small class. There was like 30 of us there. It's like amazing. I don't think they've ever had just 30 people in a class since then. But but he was teaching that and he says, I am not a counselor. Because he said, basically... When people come to me for counsel, I don't get it. I just want to say, go fix yourself. What's wrong with you? Of course, 25 years later, he and Lynn wrote the book. (laughs) He didn't get it at home either. But he had the courage to admit it and recognize that he needed to grow in certain areas. The exhorter says, just toughen up and get with it. And the mercy shower says, That's all right, honey. I understand. Come over here and let me give you a little TLC. Would you like a cup of tea? The the Mercy Shower has a totally different perspective. They empathize. They love. They drip with love. And and you get the two together and they're going to have different solutions. My perspective on it is when the exhorter gets done, the mercy giver needs to step in so that they don't lay bleeding on the floor, but they get some help because we're different. We have different backgrounds and local and global cultures. Boy, I could speak volumes on that. But I have come to learn one thing. And it took me a long time to figure it out. Cultures see things differently. They just do. The Tower of Babel had a profound impact. And when you start comparing East and West, I've tried to read and study some uh, traditional Chinese medicine. It makes no sense. To the Western linear logical mind that needs evidential proof for the next step, feeling heartwarming kidney and 131 different types of pulses, does not make sense. But you know what? It works. In some cases, it works better than Western medicine. And it has at least an even chance. And you know what the sad reality is? Of the real diseases that are out there, I'm not, I'm not talking about trauma, I'm not talking about the common cold, I'm not talking about bacterial infection, I'm talking about real diseases that that take over the body because of 
defects in genetic structure or whatever. Nobody has an answer. No one has an answer. Western medicine doesn't have an answer. Eastern medicine doesn't have an answer. But the way they approach it is entirely different. The way organizational structure is approached is entirely different. I I remember the story of the uh, president of the World Alliance uh, from Australia talking about speaking with, uh, I think it was a brother who followed him from Philippines, and this brother from the Philippines was talking about uh, how to handle problems with pastors in a shame-based culture. And he said, if I cause a pastor to lose face, I have destroyed the relationship and it cannot be remedied. So he said, if I've got a pastor that's got a, say there's a family problem and, and his son is way out of line and I need to talk to him about that. He said, I'll invite him to lunch. And somewhere during the lunchtime, I'll bring up this brother I heard about who has a son with a problem. And I'll get his advice on that. How would you handle this? What would you think? What would you do? And they would talk about that. And then he would thank him for his input in handling this other problem. And they would conclude their lunch and go their separate ways And the pastor would know that he was talking to him. But it was never said. Because you cannot risk causing shame. You have to respect. In China and in most of Latin American cultures... (laughs) Try to get them to speak openly against the leader in a board meeting. They will never, never criticize leadership. And to disagree implies criticism. They will never put the pastor down. I can't tell you how many times I begged and pleaded with people to speak honestly to me about what they really think. And I went to a cross-cultural conference, and there were a a group of second-generation Hispanic uh, people, pastors, sitting around the table, and I was put in their group. And we were talking about cultural distinctions. And I said, I have a problem and I need to understand it. I said, I cannot get the Hispanic representation of our leadership team to speak openly and honestly when they disagree with me. And I want to have that input. Otherwise, I'm like the naked king. I want to know if you disagree because I may be blind. And they just looked at me and they said, just give it up. 
you will never get them to disagree with you in a meeting. Ever. That would be the utmost disrespect. They will always agree with you. Or they will say nothing. They will never disagree with you. I said, well, how am I supposed to know what to do? Apparently the rule... Natalie, you can fix me if I'm wrong here. (laughs) But apparently the rule is... You just follow the pastor. End of story. And if you feel like you can't, you go somewhere else. Find another pastor to follow. But you don't challenge authority. These are different cultural issues. They happen all over the world. And when we're trying to have a family together, it's hard to bring it all together. And sometimes it takes a lot of conversation. Help me understand. Actually, I finally did get the gentlemen that were on our leadership team to disagree with me. It took a, a long while, but I finally I found, I convinced them that they were not disrespecting me and they were not going to hurt me. But if you think I'm doing something dumb, you tell me about it. And, and finally, that began to happen. And it took quite a while. So we have these cultural differences. And... Being in unity does not mean those are going to evaporate. Because you know the strange thing about culture? When you're looking out of your own eyes from within your own culture, you don't know you're doing it. You don't see it. You're just being who you are. Culture is so deeply ingrained that it is unconscious. And so you just assume that you're right. You know? I used to complain about Toyotas because they make the, the, the blinker clicker do the wrong thing. No, they don't. They just make it do the Japanese thing. They think differently. You know, and the little wedge that goes from nothing to something, I forget which it is, but in America... That means go faster, and in Japan, it means increase the interval, which means go slower. It's like, who would do that? Well, they probably look at us and say, those Americans, they're idiots. Who would do that? It's just different. It's just different. Wow. Can I do this in two minutes? Unity must be proactively preserved. Because of all I've said that unity is not, Paul says be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Friends, we have to work at unity. We have to work at it. We have to have those conversations. We have to sit down and talk amongst ourselves. When we're crossed with each other, We need to sit down and have a conversation, which is exactly what the next uh, couple of passages say. Um, Well, actually, I'm skipping ahead, but Matthew 18, 19, and 20 says, (laughs) 
If your brother has offended you or sinned against you, go to him. It doesn't say go to your neighbor. It it doesn't say go to the pastor. Now, if you don't know what to do, I'd rather you come to me than anybody else because I'm not going to talk. But you've got to fix it. You've got to fix it. You've got to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins, and he's quoting two Proverbs. One of two of them, anyway. Love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? Would you like someone to point out every fault you've got? I I don't mean the ones they think are faults. I mean the ones that are faults. Your sins, your mistakes, your selfishness. Do you want somebody to point all that out? You know what's amazing? God doesn't even point it all out. Not at once. What would happen to the joy of salvation if the day somebody got saved and turned their lives over to Jesus Christ and made a commitment to Him, and the minute they... Uh, get up off their knees and, and begin to rejoice. God says, now let me tell you everything I just forgave you of because you're a mess. Let me just dump the whole load on you today. God does not do that. Don't you learn today things you never knew you were doing before as you walk with God? Doesn't he open your eyes? That's the process of sanctification. He begins on the gross yucky things out here and he begins to dial in closer and closer and closer to get to the core of issues and i'm so grateful that god doesn't dump it all at once he leads me along and he gives me love and he gives me encouragement he gives me support love covers a multitude of sin we're talking sin folks I'm not just talking orneriness, which is probably sin, but I'm talking sin. Love covers it. Doesn't mean you're blind or stupid. But there's a way to keep counsel. And if it's something that needs to be addressed, or it's something that you cannot let go of you've been hurt someone has sinned against you and you can't let it go then the second second step is go to the person and have a conversation because you never know what you're liable to learn they may not even have realized what they did they might not have seen it the way you see it um Talk to a, well, never mind. Let that go. Love covers the sins, and if your brother sins against you, go to him. Unity enhances answers to prayer. Whenever two or three are gathered in my name together, I'm there. 
When you're on the same page, I'm there. Whatever you agree on is touching any one thing, I will do. What does that mean? Whenever you agree is touching any one thing. Uh, I've said this in prayer meeting many times, and i probably said it here a number of times. But that agreement does not mean that you and I both agree that you'll get a Mercedes. Okay, let's both ask God for a Mercedes for you. That's not what that means. What that means is that as you're in prayer over a, a difficulty, you're, you're asking God for, for direction. You want answers. And you both hear from the Spirit of God the same thing. With confidence, you can ask for that because it has come to you independently. And now you're in agreement, not only with each other, but with the Holy Spirit. And you can pray with confidence. So when the day of Pentecost fully came, they were together in one accord, in one place. And I love this passage in Acts. It seemed good to us, and it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. You can read the passages. That when you're in agreement and seeking God, He speaks to everyone. And there's agreement within that context. And friends, the the powerful answers to prayer are just amazing when we're in that kind of agreement. God values unity above everything and it is terribly important that we invest in maintaining it it is the most important attribute of our congregation and if we would just do things right by the way i'm so i'm so grateful let me let me just give you an attaboy okay i'm so grateful to be a part of a church family that doesn't fight I cannot tell you what a blessing that is. You know, we don't fight in our board meetings. We don't fight in our elder meetings, deacon meetings. We don't fight in our public meetings, our business meetings. I'm so grateful for that. I grew up a Southern Baptist in the South. They've perfected the art of church fighting. I'm so glad we don't fight. I love you for it. It's, it's great. But that doesn't mean that we have perfect unity either. We need to be diligent to preserve the unity and to take care of problems before they get out of hand because it's so crucial.